We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. With that, as American citizens, we were given the right to live, the right to be free, and the right to try to be happy. Our issue this morning is, are those rights that we have as Christians? And the answer could be yes, but the answer may also be no. I'm going to read to you the assignment as I was given to, given it, under the theme of freedom in Christ, discuss inalienable rights. What rights or powers do we have as citizens of the kingdom? Do we always get to exercise these rights, or are there times it is more expedient not to use them? Does a legal right mean it is right in the sight of God? What about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, the right to bear arms? Examine the rights we have as an integral part of our freedom in Christ and encourage the proper use to the glory of God and the edification of the church. End quote. I don't know about you, but I know what my initial thought was when I got this assignment. My initial thought was a question. As Christians, do we have rights? And I think we need to examine that, lest we waste two hours discussing something we don't have. And examine it in the sense of, if not, then what do we have? A song that many of us sing from time to time says the following, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me know the joy of living. Truly know that thou art mine. Lord, I give myself to you. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessings fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Those seem to me to be appropriate words for a Christian. But they raise the question even deeper in my mind. Do we have rights? The Bible talks about us as being slaves. Do slaves have rights? Yes, we have rights granted by the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, as American citizens, but our lives are to be superseded by our heavenly citizenship and not our earthly citizenship. Today, more than ever, people are insisting on their rights, even rights that I think they probably don't have. As Christians, we can help, can't help but wonder, do we have rights? And if we have rights, what are they, and what are we supposed to do with them? Do we have the right to happiness? Do we as Christians have the right to security, safety, success? wealth, 
Do we have the right to expect respect and common decency from others? Do we have the right to worship God as we see fit? Do we have the right to a good home, a good family, a good name? Do we have the right to go to war? Do we have the right to bear arms? Do we have the right to defend ourselves? Do we have the right to die? Do we have freedom of speech? Do we have the right to live without fear? Do we have the right to live without want? Do we have rights regarding medical advances and technology that just a few decades ago were so distant? And maybe most importantly, do we have the rights to our own personal pew in our congregation? Inalienable rights. What is a right? A right is something that is accorded to us with the principles of justice. But an inalienable right is something slightly different because an inalienable right is one that is not subject to forfeiture, cannot be repudiated. When you go through the scriptures, you will, depending on the translation you use, find the concept of rights for Christians. But I wonder if maybe a better translation many times of those passages wouldn't be privilege rather than rights. Because there is a difference between having a privilege and a right. A privilege is something that is reserved exclusively to certain people and not necessarily enjoyed by all. And many of what we sometimes call our Christian rights are privileges because they are not enjoyed by all. And they are conditional. And they are contingent upon our conduct. Pavel Pavlik, an exiled Russian, wrote, In Russia, Christians are tested by hardship. But in America, you are tested by freedom. And testing by freedom is much harder. Nobody pressures you about your religion, so you relax and are not so concentrated on Christ, on his teachings, and how he wants you to live. The definition of rights cannot be left to the political arena. If it is, those rights will be changed at any time. And by definition, inalienable rights cannot be changed. They can't be taken away. They can't be forfeited. Rights that are given to us from a political form are endangered rights. Webster calls rights something to which one has a just claim, a power to which one is justly entitled. Everything one may justly claim is due him. As Christians, therefore, do we have rights? Well, there is a universal declaration of human rights which is recognized as an inherent dignity and equality and inalienable right of all members of the human family. It's the basis of freedom, justice, peace in the world. It establishes each person's right to life, the right to liberty, the right to security, that no one shall be held in slavery nor subjected to torture or to cruel or inhumane treatment or punishment. But those rights are the rights that man conjures up. 
The Bill of Rights that we tend to be more familiar with really became the first ten amendments to our Constitution. Not all of the Bill of Rights made it in the Constitution. And I'm not going to read all of the rights that are under those first ten amendments, but they include such things as freedom of speech, freedom of press, the right to assemble, the right to petition, the right to keep and bear arms, the right against unreasonable seizure and search, due process of law, eminent domain, trial by jury, rights of the accused, civil trial by jury, prohibition of excessive bail, protection of rights not specified or in the Constitution, and the power of the states and the people. But I still haven't answered my initial question. Do we as Christians have rights? Well, I want to begin our study and our consideration of this by going to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to be looking at verses 38 through 42. Steve took us to Matthew and the Beatitudes yesterday, not necessarily to this particular passage, but it doesn't matter. We need to go there today anyway. And it is not an unfamiliar set of verses. It's quite the opposite. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn him also, turn him the other also. And if any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, give him also thy cloak. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. Verse 38 obviously recalls a passage that's found in Exodus 21-24. It's repeated in Leviticus 24-20 and Deuteronomy 19-21. The eye for an eye. The rex talonius. The tit for tat. It's one of the oldest known laws. It was part also of the Code of Hammurabi in Babylon in the 2200 B.C.s. It was designed to bring about rule and order. But it is not a law of vengeance, and it is not a law of retaliation. It probably should be best looked at as a law of mercy. Now, how would the concept of an eye for an eye be a law of mercy? Well, what it was was a restriction on how much punishment could be meted out to the individual who had done harm. If someone took your eye, you couldn't take his life. You had to, the, the punishment had to be proportional to the crime. But it is not giving the right for personal vengeance. We know that the Lord does not give us that right. But it's giving guidance to limiting our retaliation. So I think it, it is a law of mercy more than a law of retribution. I'm going to go through these verses, then I'll pause for any comments or questions you might have. Verse 39, I say unto you, resist not, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. How many of you have ever been slapped? Okay, a few honest people. 
Let me ask you if you could remember, what cheek were you slapped on? The left. That is probably the, the most correct answer. Because most people are right-handed. And a right-handed person will use their dominant hand to slap you because it's the strongest. So if they're mad, that's the one they're going to use. And you would slap somebody on the left cheek. But this particular verse says if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, why would he make an emphasis maybe of the right cheek rather than the, he could have said if somebody slaps you on the face. He could have said if somebody slaps you on the cheek, but he doesn't. He says if he slaps you on the right cheek. Well, let me give you a thought. You can accept it and reject it, but that's true of everything that's said. I'm right-handed, and if I slap you on the right cheek, I'm probably going to give you a backhanded slap. I could contort and try, but I, I lose all strength. I would probably slap you with the back of my hand. As such, it would not be a pugilistic slap. It would be an insulting slap, kind of like when they used to take the glove out and do this, and then they'd go shoot each other. What he's talking about, in my opinion here, is if somebody insults you. This is not pugilism. This is if, if somebody insults you, take it and let them insult you again. I don't think this is a verse, and we'll talk about the right of self-defense later, but I don't think this has anything to do with letting somebody beat the tar out of you. It has to do with being insulted. The Lord knows that a high percentage of us are right-handed. I guess if you're left-handed, you have to take this maybe a little metaphorically. But I believe he's saying if somebody insults you with a public insult... You're not to retaliate. And I think that probably goes along with Paul's comments in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, where he says, As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I think it was Mark Twain who said, I never met a man I didn't like. Well, all I can tell you is Mark Twain didn't meet a lot of people I've met. Because I can't say that. Fortunately, I think loving someone is not necessarily the same as always liking them. But this passage does not prevent us from stating an injustice of something and calling attention to it. In John chapter 18, verse 23, Jesus, when he's in front of Pilate, calls attention to an injustice. He doesn't rail out. He accepts the insult, but he calls attention to it. But to seek retaliation for an insult, I think, is to place oneself in the place of God in the place of God's authority that he has reserved for himself. Again, I would reference Romans chapter 12, the latter part of that chapter. Verse 40 is an interesting verse. If any man will sue you at law and take away your coat, let him have thy cloak also. Well, there's an issue here of suing, and we'll talk about that a little bit and reference 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in just a moment. But I notice in this verse that He's been taken to law, and apparently the law has agreed and given the man your cloak. So there must be some presumption of guilt here. And he says, well, if that's the case, you know, go the extra, extra mile. 
But let me comment while we're here before I open it up. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 8, uh, the first uh, few verses. Because it does bear on our rights. And, and I think we can feel pretty strongly about this because I think Paul did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Then dropping down a little bit in verse 6, But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. The whole concept there, and I think you're familiar with this passage, is as children of God, we are not to take our disputes to a heathen court. We are to work them out. And if that requires the church getting involved or the leadership of the church getting involved, so be it. The fault is not going to the law. The fault is going to the law against a brother. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, it says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. Awfully hard to put those relationships back together. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, when there is a disagreement, or if there are disagreements, and there will be sometimes disagreements, we as children of God are to bring it to the saints, not to the unbelieving courts. Otherwise, it's going to bring a reproach. And we are to protect the name of Christ and of the church. I believe he's telling us it is better to suffer an injury amongst brethren than to be contentious for the world to see it. And I don't know if you've ever been involved with a legal matter with another brother or sister in Christ, but I hope we have enough knowledge of this passage to settle it in the way God and the Lord has told us to do. Now the passage back in Matthew is not necessarily a brother against a brother, it just is a person against a person. But there is the concept of adhering to that which we have been given, and to submit rather than to fight for our rights. I could very easily take these verses, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42, as a proof text that you and I as Christians do not have rights. Now, I'm not saying I'm taking that position because we need to look at the entire scripture, but I could sure use this passage as a strong proof text that rights do not belong to us. We have surrendered them. We are slaves. And if somebody wants something, we give it to them. I'm going to pause there, and you may or may not have any comments or questions, but I'm going to pause there and give you a chance to comment on anything I've said so far or raise a question. And uh, do we have the rope? Yeah, we do. Thank you. Oh. Appreciate the direction you're going, John. And, and I, I agree with that too. And this passage in Matthew you picked is really good for that, that Jesus is pointing us away from the idea of I have rights and I should get this and I should get that. And it's more in harmony with the spirit of the gospel that the gospel is about how we didn't get what we deserved. We we got mercy. And so I I, I think you're your points are, are very good about how we should think more in line with what Jesus is saying rather than thinking like the world and what do I have a right to.
Okay, thank you, Tom. Anybody else want to make a comment? Okay, where are we at? Okay, Jeannie? Hi, Jean Van, Whoa. <laughs> Jean Van Egdom from Warrensburg. Um, when that uh, verse talking about um, give your cloak, I, w I couldn't help thinking about Zacchaeus and uh, he uh, would when he said that if he'd uh, stolen from anyone, he would give, what was it, four times back. Um, you know, that's kind of the way I feel like if, if, if I was ever in court and, and I had, was found guilty and didn't realize it, I would want to give more because I would feel guilty. And I would want to recompense more. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, did, I just would feel that way, like Zacchaeus did. If, if I had stolen from someone unintentionally, I would want to recompense more because of my guilt. And I, I just, I, reading that made me think of Zacchaeus in that instant. Okay, thank you. Good for you. I don't know if I'd feel that way. Four times is what I think Zacchaeus did, if I remember correctly. We had one, oh, here we go. Gene Brush from Prince Road. We must remember we represent God as a Christian. Our actions could bring disparity upon him. And that's it, what he does not want. Okay. So we have to act in a way that would bring glory to him. Okay. Okay, having raised the question, do we have rights, and maybe spending 30 minutes kind of giving you some context where we don't have rights, let me say I think we do have rights. And this is a classic place where we need to take the entire scriptures and not just one scripture. I don't think we took Matthew 5, 38 through 42 out of context, but if we took it alone, we could easily reach the wrong conclusion. Jeannie, and we'll talk about this probably in the second hour, mentioned the mentioned if she had stolen from somebody. Well, in the Old Testament, thou shalt not steal. What's the implication of that commandment? The implication of that is that it's right to own property because you can't steal it if somebody doesn't own it. Therein is kind of what we call the, the law of non-contradiction as we analyze the Bible. If you come up with two positions that seem to con contradict each other, you know you haven't gotten there yet. And if we take this passage in Matthew that we are to give all of our everything somebody asks for, it, that's going to contradict other passages in the Bible. If every time somebody asks me for something, I give it to them, how am I going to, for instance, live up to 1 Timothy 5.8? He that doesn't provide for his own is worse than an infidel. How am I going to deal with 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 or 11 that says, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat? Well, a person that doesn't work asks me for food. I go to Matthew 5, I give it to him. Well, that's fine. But have I violated 2 Corinthians 3? Well, we're going to talk about these things. But this is a classic place where my first impression, and maybe yours, and I've asked some of you, do Christians have rights? And, and I get this deer and headlight look. Because you're not comfortable saying yes, and you're not comfortable saying no. And I, I understand that. 
So I've really enjoyed this assignment because it's, it, it's one that has caused me to maybe go back and look at a few things a little bit uh, differently. Now, let me say, and I'm not going to talk about this for, other than maybe two sentences, probably the ultimate right God has given us is the right of choice. We sometimes call it free will. It will never be taken away from it. It is an inalienable right. God has given us all the right to choose. I think there's obviously good reasons he's given us that. However, many of us don't make good decisions. Now, before I leave Matthew 5, this idea of giving to one another, there is a passage that I want to look at. And it's under the idea, should we give to everybody that has a need? Is our Christian responsibility to give to everybody that has a need? Well, Galatians chapter 6 says, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. And that's obviously truism. But I would like for you, just in briefly, to, to take a look at Mark chapter 14 and verse 7. Mark chapter 14, verse 7, I find to be an interesting verse, not to be used as an excuse for not being benevolent, nor is it to be used as an excuse for not being generous, because as God's people, we are so richly blessed that there is no excuse for not being generous and benevolent. However, in Mark 14 and 7, Jesus says, You have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good, but you have me not always. Now the context is, they were to, to, to tend to him because he wasn't going to be with them forever. And poor people were always going to be there. But what I find interesting is the phraseology, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. Some of the translations and the original Greek carry the idea, whenever you choose, there is choice, there is judgment in our benevolence and in our generosity. Otherwise, we're going to contradict other passages because we're going to be without. Probably we err on the, on the side of not being generous enough rather than being too generous. I just offer that to you as there are times when generosity takes different shapes, different forms. Every congregation here, every eldership, deaconship has been trying to decide when someone comes and asks them for something, do we help them? Well, my position on that is we always try to help people. But there needs to be great discernment and judgment in what constitutes help. And sometimes just giving of money, food, whatever, is not help and is not loving. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we don't know. And I can't make those decisions for you and you can't make them for me. But I do think this, this, I, this passage in Mark 14 and 7 is one at least for us to consider. Sometimes the most loving thing may not be to give the man a cloak if it's not an appropriate action. I'm not saying that to contradict the words in Matthew 5. I'm saying that to try to put other passages together so that we understand maybe what the Lord was actually saying. Does anybody want to make a comment on that? I know that was kind of an, uh, an aside, but I think it, it ties in a little bit with, uh, with this concept in Matthew 5. We've got way in the back, Charles. Okay, and meanwhile, Eric. Uh, Eric Owens, Prince Road. Uh, in, in addition to this uh, discernment and judgment, I think, in regards to uh, offering benevolence 
outside of the church uh, and using the church's money in particular. Uh, Jesus' rebuke of the masses after he had fed the thousands was that you don't, you don't follow me because of the message. You're following me because I fed you and filled your belly. And then he gives them there in John 6 a very hard teaching in regards to what the real food is all about, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he gives them nothing else but the hard teaching. And so I think that there is discernment and judgment as that regards. And I felt, you know, I was just, I was a mess for a good long while uh, trying to decide, well, you know, what circumstances, trying to see through people, trying to understand their motives and their intentions and whether they were genuine or not. And um, in the end, whenever I see Jesus treat these individuals, the multitudes, as he did, and we know that all of them, all of them left him except for, I think, perhaps the inner circle, then, you know, I, we, I, that's, that's, one of the, uh, that's one of the proof texts, if you will, that I've used in some of my judgments in regards to whether we should or shouldn't help individuals uh, from the outside is what are they willing to show us in earnestness towards Christ and towards God? And if they're not interested in showing any earnestness in that regard at all, then they won't eat. Okay, thank you. I, I do think there is such a thing as misdirected benevolence, but we probably sometimes err on the side of not being benevolent enough. Charles? Yeah, I was thinking about in 1 Timothy 5 and 4, uh, the example of the widow. Um, Paul tells them, do not help the widow with family. Uh, let the family be the one to help her. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's move on just a little bit so that we, we stay on, on, on target here. A classic example of a godly man in Scripture that to me proves that we have rights and it's appropriate to use them for our furtherance of the Lord is the Apostle Paul. Several times in the latter part of the book of Acts, Paul invokes his rights as a Roman citizen. Now, we don't know exactly how, or at least I don't know how Paul became a Roman citizen. Some people think he was a Roman citizen because he was born in Tarsus. Sometimes wrote a Roman citizenship. A family would buy it. Sometimes a member in the family would be a military or a great servant of the government, and, and the Roman government would bestow it. It really doesn't matter. Paul was a Roman citizen. In Acts chapter 16, and we're going to look at a couple of these, we find Paul in the city of Philippi, and we commonly think of this regarding the Philippian jailer. But prior to that uh, encounter with the Philippian jailer, he had upset people in the town of Philippi. And if we, if we look or note in the 16th chapter, uh, Verse 20, well, verse 22. The multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. This is Paul and Silas. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. And then that, of course, leads to the, the earthquake and the, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But they had been beaten 
and they had been thrown in jail without a trial. Well, that contradicted the rights of a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had multiple rights, maybe not quite as many as us, but, but not a whole lot less. What they had been done to them was illegal. Now, Paul could have turned the other cheek, as some people define Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. And to some extent he did. They went to jail. But if you drop down to verse 37 in the 16th chapter, the magistrates, well, let me take verse 36. The keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Now, why did the, the magistrates want Paul and Silas to leave? Well, maybe the earthquake had something to do with it. I think probably what may well have happened is the realization that they had illegally treated Roman citizens and they were in hot water. So, do us a favor and leave. Notice what Paul does. But Paul said unto them, We have been beaten openly, illegal, uncondemned, they didn't have a trial, and being Romans, have, they have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us secretly? No way. Let them come and get us themselves. There's a little bit, I don't, I don't want to put words in Paul or Luke's mouth, there's a little bit of rubbing their face in it here. Okay, you treated us like that, it was illegal, you violated our rights, you come and get us. Which would be a bit of a humiliating thing for an arrogant magistrate. But what was Paul doing? That's the point. He was invoking his rights as a Roman citizen to make a point. Well, it doesn't end there. Over in, in uh, pardon me, in uh, Acts chapter 22, we find Paul again in verses, I'm going to look at verses 24 through 29 in Acts chapter 22. He's again in, in, a, in a difficult thing. And it said, The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade him should be examined. How? By scourging, that he might know whereof he cried out against him. So Paul's going to get whipped. And as they bound him with thongs, so he was being bound, he was going to get whipped, Paul said unto the, unto the centurion, Is it lawful that you scourge a man that is a Roman? And hasn't had a trial? Again, Paul is invoking his rights. Well, if Paul can invoke his rights, then we as Christians must have rights. He's invoking them, and I think you probably remember the story to a great extent. It changes the whole, whole tone of this, doesn't it? Paul had rights because he was a Roman citizen. You and I have rights. Because we're American citizens. We have some rights just because we are human beings. Therefore, I have to conclude that yes, we do have rights, even though there are passages that rightly tell us to be willing to sometimes sacrifice those rights or to subvert those rights for a, a greater good. We do still have rights that, that the scriptures seem to uh, discuss and allude to. We can go on in the book of Acts, and you go on over in the latter chapters, and what does Paul do? He appeals to Caesar, which is a right. And that's how 
the journey went to, to Caesarea and then on to Rome. It would seem to me he was doing that not necessarily to protect himself, although that would not have been inappropriate. He was probably doing that so he'd have more opportunity to spread the word, maybe at some places where he had not been. But whatever it was, and again, I don't want to uh, read, put words in any of these in, in, in the scripture's mouth, but there is this classic example of Paul in chapter 16 and in chapters 21, 22, 20. Five of invoking his rights. So we do have rights, or we can have rights as Christians. I believe Paul is excellent, excellent proof that Christians do have civil and judicial rights, and it's not inappropriate and sometimes quite appropriate for us to invoke them if that properly leads to a further glorification of God. And that seems to me to be the, the ultimate ultimate uh, test. I think we're all familiar with the passage, whether we remember where it's at, but it's found in Acts chapter 5, verse 21. We ought to obey God rather than man. Well, certainly, our citizenship is in heaven, but that does not negate our American citizenship any more than Paul's citizenship in heaven negated his Roman citizenship, which he did use. Therefore, I have to conclude that Having rights is appropriate. I had some historical information here, and I, I don't really want to get too much into that. But the Romans had a, two laws in particular, a Valerian and Porcian law, that really protected them. And it protected them against shameful forms of punishment, against scourging with rods and whips, uh, crucifixion. It also established certain rights for Roman citizens, which was the right of appeal to the Caesars, which you've already alluded to. And these were laws that were on and off the books ever since the beginning of the Roman Empire, probably about 500 B.C. So they were classic rights that, when you read them, they're not too unlike some of our Bill of Rights, but they are appropriate and they are rights that I think, as, as citizens, as long as they don't contradict our Christian principles are our Christian rights. Now, our government does give us rights that we cannot engage in. Our government gives us the right to abort. Our government gives us numerous rights that we as Christians can't participate in. It is not illegal to drink. It's not illegal to get drunk in America. It is if you drive and get caught, but it's not illegal. But those are rights that we as Christians obviously don't engage in or shouldn't engage in because they contradict the rights that the Lord has given us or, or the prohibitions, maybe I should say, that the Lord should give us. Does anybody have a comment or a question on, this, on these in Acts that, that I've talked about or, or, or anything so far? Uh, Tom and then Jeremy. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, John. I, in the case of Paul, it's like you said that he invoked his rights when he thought it would further the cause of Christ. In the case of the Philippians, I've always thought that uh, Paul did that because of the impression that the community would have had of Paul and Silas. Well, why did they get put in jail? You know, and th to invoke his rights here, I think, did something to counteract that, to show that Paul and Silas didn't deserve the treatment they got, and I think that in turn then would help the church. And then later on, of course, uh, it, Paul was told when he was chosen to be an apostle that he would testify before kings. 
So I think that fit into his invoking his rights to appeal to Caesar. That was a way he was going to get to testify before the biggest king of all. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jer Jeremy? Yeah, Jeremy Morris. Um, it's real, my point or thought about the what Paul did at Philippi is real similar. I wonder, is just throwing a thought out, is if he did this to protect the Philippian Christians, that here he is a, he's a, a Roman citizen coming in and he's being treated wrongly. And every, Rome, every Christian who's a citizen of Philippi would have also been a Roman citizen. And it's to set a precedent that you cannot treat, mistreat uh, the, the Roman citizens uh, who follow this belief. Okay, that, that's a good thought. I hadn't really tracked on that, but it could have been a protective, somewhat a protective thing for the new church there as he left town. I'm, I'm sure the magistrates would have been a little less guarded about persecuting the Christians after that, this faux pas that they had made regarding Paul. Good thought. Anybody else? Uh, over here, Dace. Frank. Frank Green from Olamine. I think that in listening to everything you've said, that, that our rights should always be unselfish. And that's the way Paul was. He didn't look for everything for his good, but where he could spread the word and glorify God. And I think that's what we as Christians should do. Okay. While you're getting the mic, there, and I don't know if I'll get to it, but knowing, knowing myself, I won't. But there's a passage back, and I think it's in Genesis. Well, I know it's in Genesis. I think it's in 26, where there was disputes over water. And the Philistines said, no, this is my well. And, and they had actually filled it in, but actually it was a well that Abraham had dug and Isaac had rights to it. And what does Isaac do? He goes on and digs another well. And what happens? Some guys from another area come and say, no, that's mine. So what does Isaac do? He moves on. I think Isaac had every right to, in my human thinking, and maybe in the Lord's thinking, to defend those wells but he moved on because he had that option. And I've always thought that was, that was him applying the principle that we find in, in Romans 12. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. There are many times, and it's a wonderful witness as a Christian, to turn the other cheek regarding our rights. Even though I think that passage in Matthew is an insulting turning of the cheek rather than a pugilistic uh, one of the great ways to, to uh, defuse a hostile person is to smile and treat them nicely because they don't know, that's not what they're expecting. But that's not our natural bent. Our natural bent is to fight back. And there are times when we have to defend our rights to keep from violating other scriptures. But there can be a lot of good witnessing by uh, moving on. And, and that's what that I'm agreeing with what you're saying because that's putting self last. You know, I was I'll be right with you, Doug. I was I was at a VBS last week, and one of the young ladies that used to be in VBS was at a, a, a working as a counselor in a camp, and she'd written the church a letter, and and I read the part of the letter, and it said, "Our theme at the camp is uh, we're the third person." And the whole concept was Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. 
And I thought that was a nice theme for a, for a group trying to work with disadvantaged people. I'm the third person. Jesus comes first, you come next, and I'm, I'm last. Doug? Um, in uh, Acts, the chapter you're in, Acts 22, verse 28, the okay. commander and Paul have a really interesting conversation about the commander says, I, I bought my citizenship with a lot of money. And Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. And it showed a difference because he would have actually had, under Roman law, a lot more rights than the commander even had. And it, it put the commander off guard. That's, that's really what did it. Um, because he was going to be in a lot more trouble for beating him than he would have been for, and he didn't beat him, but potentially beating him, than he would have been for somebody that was uh, also purchased Roman citizenship. And I agree with Jeremy. I think this whole circumstance, the book of Philippians, Paul does not talk to them about how to endure persecution or what might be coming, anything like that. He talks to them about humility and love and faith. And it seems like, not that they had it easy, but it seems like maybe... He did set the stage for at least that group to not have to endure the types of persecutions that other people were. And, and I, I like the idea that you were talking about that Paul selectively used these rights because there was a lot of times he was beaten when he could have avoided it. And he chose not to for whatever reason. Maybe it was good for the brethren. Maybe uh, they needed to see the example of how to suffer because they, he knew they were going to. Uh, whatever the reasoning was, but here in Philippi, he he chose something different. Okay, thank you. You know, I, I think a classic example, and some of you have probably been in this, but I'll just use it as an example of having to use some judgment in the exercise. You loan me $50, and I say, okay, I'll pay you back. And I don't pay you back. Okay, you got the right to come and demand I pay it back. Or you got the right to forget it. And I think either one could be correct depending upon the situation and what I need. If I really need it and can't pay you back, the Christian thing might be to, to let me keep it. But if it's, a, if it's an incident of I'm just showing a fiscal irresponsibility, the loving thing might be to take a, a tougher stand with me and cause me to, to get my act together and pay it back. Each one of those are personal judgments, but I think, I know some of you have been in those situations and had to make those decisions, and each situation requires prayerful thought. Do we have anybody else? I'm, I'm not trying to miss anybody, but I don't see anybody right now. Okay, we've got just a couple of minutes before, before break. I'm going to begin this, and then we may finish it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I alluded to this, but I want to look at verses 8, 9, and 10. In our Bill of Rights, it says we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I want to look at this passage and, and ask ourselves, do we have the right to life? Is, is life an inalienable right? And by inalienable, I mean it can't be taken away from us, so we have that right. Well... I don't know that this passage completely answers it, but I do think it deals with it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught or undeservingly, 
but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable unto you, any of you. Paul didn't want to be a burden to them. I did, what did I say? I'm sorry. Second Thessalonians 3. Thank you, Tom. Second Thessalonians 3, 8, 9, and 10. And then he says in verse 9, Not because we have not power to make ourselves an example unto you to follow. For even when we were with you, we commanded you that if any man would not work, neither should he eat. There is a stipulation placed there on eating. And that is the willingness to work. I don't think he's talking about people who can't work. He's not talking about those who, because of health reasons or circumstances, are in real need. Bible teaches us benevolence in that regard, but there does seem to be an indication here that if a, if a person is able to work and won't work, they may be forfeiting their right to eat. Well, if that's true and you forfeit your right to eat, I guess you forfeit your right to live. Because most of us eventually, some of us would take longer than others, but most of us eventually would quit living if we quit eating. So I, I believe that life is sacred, but I don't know whether I'd even call life an inalienable right, because if I'm not going to, I'm just going to set, I'm not sure that the Lord has promised me that I will continue to live. And I'm not sure you as my Christian brothers, although you might, should uh, encourage me or enable me in that. It seems to me like even, even the, the, the right of life in this instance has some limitations. Now this has nothing to do with right to life as it relates to abortion because there we're talking about an individual that can't defend themselves, speak up for themselves. But I find that an interesting thing. The Lord is a working Lord and we are made in the image of God and part of that image must be we're to have a good strong work ethic whenever possible. And I trust that the majority if not everybody here does. I know I'm, I'm somewhat preaching to the choir but we live in a society that doesn't agree with that. It does not agree with that. And we're living in a society, and oftentimes things that affect our society affect the church. It's just a matter of a 10 or 15 or 20 year delay. But we are to be a working people. We are to be a providing for ourselves people whenever possible. And again, I'm not talking about difficult times, health problems, loss of job that's beyond our control. Those are times when we're there for one another. I, I couldn't feel more strongly about that. But it seems to me like even here's a case where maybe a Christian looks at it a little bit different than we do our First Amendment or the Bill of Rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If I have time, we'll talk about do we have the right to liberty and do we have the right to pursuit of happiness. But after our break, I do want to, because I was asked to talk to you about do Christians have the right to own property, or do we literally own property or not, and do we have the right to bear arms? So we'll talk about those after the break. You're dismissed for 30 minutes.